Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we confess that as we come into your presence, there are times where our eyes are just blind to who you are. Then there are times, and you know this, that we are deceived. And so we pray today, dear Father, asking that you would open our eyes and remove the veil we might see you clearly and know you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What does it mean that the devil is sometimes called the father of lies? Now, as we think about the history of Satan, we recognize that in the beginning, God created the world and it was all good. There was no devil. The Bible tells us that God created in the beginning heavens and earth, meaning that God created the physical world and God created the spiritual world. God filled the physical world with plants and animals that walked on land and and swam in the waters and flew in the skies. And God populated the spiritual world with living beings as well, including angels. And at the end of creating all living beings, God stepped back from it, and we read his estimation of what he did in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, where we read, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So now as God thought about and looked at what he had created, he realized there is nothing about which God said it is bad. In fact, about everything, God said it is good. Not just good, it is very good. Which means that in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, there was no devil. There was no one about whom God had said it is bad. Instead, there was only an angel, a powerful angel spiritual being God had created. But by Genesis 3, we know that that angel, that powerful spiritual being, had rebelled against God. The rebellion was complete in Genesis chapter 3, and in Genesis chapter 3, we read about how the devil, Satan, came into the garden that God had created in the form of a serpent. Now, in the garden, the serpent, the devil, knew that he could not defeat God, but he had decided to do all of the damage that he possibly could to God's creation. And so Satan comes into the garden and he spins a web of lies and deceit for the first two human beings. And those first two human beings believed Satan's lies. They rebelled against God. They disobeyed God and they joined Satan's rebellion and They completely wrecked creation, all because they believed Satan's lies. And so we come to the New Testament, and we read that Jesus is the one who calls Satan, or the devil, 
the father of lies. In John chapter 8, Jesus was speaking about a group of Jewish religious leaders, and, and he associated their lies that they were telling about him with the, the person and the nature of Satan. And he described it this way. He said, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He goes on to say, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so Jesus is the one who tells us that the devil is the father of lies, and Satan is still lying. Some of the lies that we hear are lies that get lobbed into our lives. People speak them, and, and we hear them, and we receive them, and, and they take root in us. But some lies are deeply ingrained in our culture. They're ways of thinking that have become so natural to us as a culture that we treat them like proverbs. They're lies that we repeat over and over again as if they are the truth and we organize our lives and our society around some of them. During this series, we're going to look at five such proverb-level lies in our society. We're going to look at where they come from. We're going to look at how they derive from the nature and the history and the thought of Satan himself. We're going to break them down and, and expose them for what they truly are and ask the question, how can we rid ourselves of these lies and how can we protect ourselves from these lies? Now, the lie that we begin with this week is the one, follow your bliss. Follow your bliss is a statement that is so commonly made that we just accept it as the truth and people live their lives by it. It leads you to ask the question, what then is bliss? Bliss means perfect happiness or great joy. Perfect happiness or great joy. Now, ironically, the term bliss and that kind of great joy is associated with the joy that we can have perfectly and completely only in God and in God's presence. And so the statement, follow your bliss, should be pointing us to God, to our need for Him. But what it actually means in our society is that we pursue ourselves and our own interests. And so we're going to ask, what does this statement mean? Where does it come from? And how can we replace this lie with the truth that we get from God's Word? Now, as we dig in, we're going to see today as we try to explore this statement that Satan was the first to live by the phrase, follow your bliss. And we find, actually, it's contained in many ways in the recounting in the Bible of the fall of Satan. And this is actually our core scripture reading for today. It comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, where we read about the fall of Satan. Isaiah writes, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, 
to the far reaches of the pit. So Isaiah chapter 14 recounts the fall of an angelic being who becomes Satan, the devil. And his fall is built on the whole idea of following your bliss. Verses 12 through 15 actually come as a bit of a surprise in the chapter, Isaiah chapter 14, because in that chapter, Isaiah the prophet is predominantly speaking about the king of Babylon. He said about the king of Babylon that the king of Babylon in the ancient world was one who brought destruction and conquest across the known world. Now, as Isaiah the prophet thought about the king of Babylon, he had recognized that the king of Babylon was actually probably coming to wreak destruction on God's own people. You see, God's own people had been disobeying him, and so Isaiah could see that judgment was coming, and it was coming from the king of Babylon. They would judge God's people. But Isaiah could also see in the king of Babylon that he would go too far. He would grab too much. He would do too much destruction because of the king's very nature. And in that, the king of Babylon reminded him of another one who had an evil tendency and who had grasped after too much. The king of Babylon reminded him of an angelic being, of Lucifer, the one that the Bible called the day star. And Isaiah the prophet recounted how Lucifer, the day star, had at one time been in heaven, one of the greatest of all the angels, and had gathered together forces that allied with him, and in his pride had sought to assert control in heaven over God Most High. And in his envy and greed, he wanted more and more, so he rebelled against God. But when he rebelled against God, he found quickly that God was completely in charge, and God cast him out of heaven. He descended, he fell, he he ended up in Sheol or Hades or hell, suffering and in eternal torment. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, gives us Satan's backstory. Now, John Milton in Paradise Lost thought about Satan's backstory. Paradise Lost is one of the most important works ever to be written in the English language in poetry, and in it, Milton explores what the fall of Satan was like, what Satan's rebellion against God was like, what resulted from it, and how that impacted all of creation. And Milton recognized that Satan, Lucifer, in falling, found himself in hell, in torment, in flames, and in darkness. But in hell and in torment, Lucifer was still bent on rebellion. Milton puts these words in Satan's mouth. Satan said, according to Milton in his imagination, all is not lost. The unconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate, and courage never to submit or yield. And what is else not to be overcome? That glory never shall his wrath or might extort from me. And this is what Milton imagines Satan says 
in hell and in torment. Satan continues to be gripped. Satan continues to be consumed by a need for revenge and a desire to hurt and to defy God. You see, Satan is living this follow-your-bliss lifestyle, and this lifestyle is built on two pillars, and Satan shows us what these two pillars are. The first pillar of the follow-your-bliss lifestyle is pride. In his pride, Satan believed himself to be higher than, better than, God most high, and pride was pillar number one of his follow-your-bliss lifestyle. Pillar number two was envy, and its close twin, greed. Because in his envy, Satan wanted what God had that he did not. And in his greed, Satan wanted more and more. Pride and envy are the two pillars upon which the follow-your-bliss lifestyle is built. Now, the follow-your-bliss lifestyle has been spreading for centuries. That's important for us to understand. The follow-your-bliss lifestyle has been spreading for centuries. To understand how, we have to go back and think about traditional societies that came before the modern world. And as we think about traditional societies, we recognize that some of them had expectations and norms that felt a little suffocating. Pastor and author Tim Keller writes about his own grandfather's journey. His grandfather was raised in the 1880s in Italy. Now, I recognize that's not exactly the Middle Ages, but it was still a very traditional society. And Keller's grandfather, upon coming, becoming an adult, announced to the family that he didn't want to go into the family business. His family was potters. They made pottery. And Keller's grandfather said, I don't want to be a potter. I don't want to make pottery. And so his grandfather's father said to him, that's fine, you have three choices. You can become a priest, you can go into the military, or you can make pottery. Our family, we're potters. This is what we do. And so Tim Keller's grandfather emigrated to America, where there were more possibilities. You see, some of the norms and expectations that traditional societies had were actually suffocating. But you see, traditional societies assumed that life and society was built on God's will. Now, when the truth is told in traditional societies, some things were built on God's will, and some things were just traditions. But the people living in those societies could not tell the difference. They thought it all came from God's will, that life and society were built on God's will, and some was just suffocating tradition. So then we fast forward to the Enlightenment, and Enlightenment thinkers began to ask the question, can we build life and society on something else? Seeing that sometimes it was suffocating, they pushed back against a society built on God's will and a life built on God's will. And instead, they theorized we should have a society and a life that is based on the consent of the governed. And so the Enlightenment envisioned a new way of living together. People would come together in life and society for the common good as we individually pursue our own happiness. So gradually, instead of responsibility and tradition, freedom became the ultimate value. And that thought got deeper and deeper in our society 
for centuries. Now, fast forward to the 20th century, and a philosopher and psychologist by the name of Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell studied the myths of ancient and contemporary societies and looked for common patterns across them. Toward the end of his life, in what ended up being his last book, he focused on one particular myth that he found to be compelling. And this is the myth of the individual who makes, not God's will, but everything that I can get from life here and now, the ultimate quest in life. Campbell was interviewed on PBS, and this is what he said about his findings. He said, if you do follow your bliss, you put yourself on a kind of track that has been there all the while waiting for you. And the life that you ought to be living is the one you are living. He goes on to say, I say, here it is again, follow your bliss and don't be afraid. Look at what he says. Doors will open where you didn't know they were going to be. Follow your bliss, Campbell said. And that saying stuck in our society. In fact, now we have a society that is by and large based on the concept of follow your bliss. Tim Keller writes about what that's going to look like in society when it's motivated by freedom. Keller writes, freedom has come to be defined as the absence of any limitations or constraints on us. By this definition, the fewer boundaries we have on our choices and actions, the freer we feel ourselves to be. But at the same time, Tim Keller warns us of what this lifestyle can do to us. He says, there's going to be a result. And he says, held in this form, I want to argue that the narrative has gone wrong and is doing damage. What he's saying is that when we live the follow your bliss lifestyle, we're not actually building a life of freedom and possibility. We're actually creating for ourselves destruction and our own private hells. Keller warns, warns very, very courageously about the follow your bliss lifestyle. Well, what does the follow your bliss lifestyle look like? I want to suggest to you today three things that the follow your bliss lifestyle looks like. The first thing has to do with higher authorities, and that is no higher authority can tell us what to do. That's the first principle of the follow your bliss lifestyle that there is no reason that a state or a set of expectations, a religion or a God should be able to tell us how we are to live our lives and how we are to organize society. In fact, if there is any higher authority seeking to impose norms, then what we do is we resist them because all of those norms are really just a form of oppression. They are a power exerting themselves over us. And what we do is reject them. And when we reject them, we find the way to true freedom. So no higher authority can tell us what to do. The second thing has to do with breaking boundaries. Boundaries become limits to be overcome. Boundaries become limits to be overcome. You see, in previous generations, the hero's journey would be the individual who takes great risk in order to do the common good, who pays a high price to build the common good. Think of the story 
of Hacksaw Ridge. It's a movie about a real-life set of circumstances whereby an individual, Desmond Doss, in World War II, believed that he couldn't get around the commandment, you shall not kill, in order to participate in World War II. So he became a conscientious objector. He would not carry a firearm, and he would not kill anyone. And so he became a medic during World War II. And in a battle that lasted for several days, Desmond Doss risked his life multiple times to go up Hacksaw Ridge to bring down wounded soldiers that everyone else assumed had died in battle. Over the course of that battle, Desmond Doss rescued 75 individuals who had been given up for dead. And afterward, he received the Medal of Honor. And that is the hero's journey of the person who, at great cost and risk to themselves, does something for the common good. But that narrative is being replaced. Now, if boundaries are meant to be overcome, the hero's journey is different. The hero is not the one who lays aside their interests for the common good. The hero is now the one who knows what is expected of them and does what they want to do instead, no matter what the costs are to them. Because boundaries are now things to be overcome. In its place, we have instead our own interests. What we want is our primary concern. I should have what I want to have. I should do what I want to do. And that is the basis of the follow your bliss lifestyle. Now, it's fascinating that we as Christians actually at times live this follow your bliss lifestyle. Think about it. How often do we not as Christians ignore what it is that God wants when we select things like careers in life? Do we really ask, God, what is your will when we're choosing a mate in life and how to be intimate? Do we really ask, God, what is your will when we decide how we're going to spend our time and our money? Now, when we do not ask consciously, God, what is your will? And what's driving our decision instead is, what is my will? What do I want? What is going to produce my bliss? And suddenly, before we even realize it, we too are living out of pride and envy and greed, our own follow your bliss lifestyle. But we have to remember the follow your bliss lifestyle is actually a pathway frequently to destruction. If we eat like gluttons, we're going to end up with health consequences. If we climb without training and tools, we're probably going to fall. If we drive too fast and too furious, we're probably going to end up in jail. If we live like we are on an island of independence, then we are probably going to end up alone. 
Because you see, when we live the follow your bliss lifestyle, we tell ourselves that in living this follow your bliss lifestyle, I'm going to have what I want, I'm going to get what I want. But the fact of the matter is, when we live the follow your bliss lifestyle, it is almost always a path to destruction instead. And so that leaves us with a question. What then are we going to do? What we do is simple. We replace Satan's lie with the truth, find true freedom. We replace Satan's lie with the truth, find true freedom. You see, it is actually possible that we can live in hell and convince ourselves instead that we are in paradise. In fact, in Milton's Paradise Lost, the devil did exactly that. The devil looked around at his circumstances and convinced himself that despite the fact he was in fire and darkness and torment, all he had to do was change his mind about it, and his prison would become to him a paradise. And he came to the conclusion that is captured in probably the most famous statement from Paradise Lost, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And like Satan, we can convince ourselves at times that the lives that we are living, despite the fact that they cause us suffering and do harm to others, are not a hell that we are creating for ourselves, but they are instead a paradise. And we get comfortable in hell. We must not get comfortable in hell. Instead, the gospel offers us true freedom in Christ. You see, apart from Jesus Christ, we too are sinners. We too are in rebellion against God. We have disobeyed God, and we're living lives of pride and envy and greed. And when we live lives of sin and disobedience and and rebellion against God and pride and envy and greed, then we are joining ourselves with Satan And when we join ourselves with Satan, the future that's in front of us is the same future that's in front of him. Our destiny is hell when we live lives of sin, disobedience, rebellion, pride, envy, and greed. What we need is forgiveness for these things. And the gospel is that Jesus died to pay the price for our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion, our pride, our envy, and our greed. And beyond that, the gospel tells us the good news is that because Jesus has died, when we accept forgiveness for all of our sin, well, then God's love comes rushing into our lives. And with God's love, we get new life and eternal life. That's true freedom. And the gospel reminds us that when we experience true freedom, what we want to do is love and obey God in return. When we recognize that we are loved by God, then we come to realize that God's will for our lives is the pathway to living the right and blessed life. And so having been loved by God... It is only natural that we love God in response. And when we love God, we want to obey him. We want to live according to his will. We want to live the life that he has planned for us to live. So loving and obeying God becomes the pathway to true 
freedom. Now, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ already today, then the way for you to find true freedom here and now is to come to understand where you have said no to God and to say yes instead. Sometimes we say no to God without realizing we've done it, without thinking about it. We've just done our own thing instead of what God wants us to do. Sometimes we've said no to God explicitly. We know what it is that God wants for us and from us, and we say, God, no, my answer to you is no. I'm going to do my own thing instead. And if you have said no to God, there's a very clear way to deal with that. If you've said no to God, the first thing that you do is repent. Repent of saying no to God and accept the forgiveness that comes to you in Jesus Christ. The second thing that you do is believe. You believe that true freedom is found in Jesus Christ and not in following your own bliss. And instead, you follow Jesus Christ. You say yes to God and to his will for your life. You repent, you believe, and you follow. You move from no to yes with God. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then the pathway to true freedom for you is just that simple. You repent. You repent of the sin and disobedience and rebellion and pride and envy and greed in your life. And you believe. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died to pay the price for your sin, and that he rose again victorious over sin and evil and Satan, and you accept the forgiveness that's being offered to you. And then you follow. You love God and put him in charge of your life. Make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, repent, believe, and follow. That's how you walk away from Satan's lies and walk toward the truth that God offers. That's how you find true freedom. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.